good morning again. It's good to have you all here. And I know some of these parts of this are not ideal, but I'm just glad to, ha- to be here, like I said, in our text and worship together. So if you guys want to turn with me to Acts chapter 11, we'll be continuing our study of the, the book of Acts. And I don't know what you guys have all thought about this. We're you know, probably a good two-thirds into the book, or a one-third into the book at this point, and hopefully it's been beneficial. And as we've been going through, we've been looking at this history of the early church that we see in the book of Acts. From just 50 days after Christ's death, we pick up with the disciples, we see his ascension and the pouring out of his spirit. I think it's also important for us to remember what came before this, right? We're in the New Testament. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Like Daryl said, not to be patronizing at all, but it's important to remember where we're at, that um, before this, there was, before the book of Acts, there was four Gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're giving us a, not only a historical account of what Christ did in his earthly ministry, but also a theological account, right? So there's great truths that we glean, not only from the Gospels, but also from the book of Acts. And so maybe it's helpful to think of where we're at, right? The Gospels show Christ's sufferings, his earthly ministry, if you want to call it that, his humiliation, as theologians call it. And as we've turned to the book of Acts, we've seen his exaltation, his state of glory, where he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is now building his church by his Spirit. And so hopefully we can start to see how this sort of frames really not just the New Testament, but the whole Bible for us, that these things that we've been seeing, maybe sometimes they feel random or out of place that we see in the book of Acts, but hopefully with that picture of Christ in heaven building his church, it helps us from seeing what we're going to see today as just random events, maybe even some repetition. Why is this here? Why is this there? Christ is building his church even today, right? We're in this small room, you know, in the middle of Decatur, Illinois, but God is still building his church. So this applies very much to us here today, right? It's not just God was working in the book of Acts, and so he doesn't work with us here today. No, we're saying that God does work with us here today. He's fulfilling his divine purposes. So that's what we'll see today in Acts chapter 11. And just a brief review of last time, we We picked up with the Apostle Peter. You might remember him, the great fisherman that Jesus called and said, I will make you fishers of men, right? And we've sort of seen that in these last couple chapters. We've seen these miracles that Peter has wrought, healing a crippled person, raising a dead person. And then we've seen that all be confirmatory of this great message that the gospel is for the Gentiles, not just the Jews. So hopefully we've seen that, we've seen the importance of that, and today we'll look at this, how there's some opposition to this. Not only did we see that last couple weeks, but this week we'll see it again, and we'll see how there's this tension, there's this inner turmoil between the Jews of the day and this message of the gospel going to the nations. And hopefully we can see how this will apply to us today, and we'll look at also this idea of repentance and purity if you want to put it that way. So let's read the passage. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at it. So we're in Acts chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those that of the circumcision criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by heaven from its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning humbly. You are God, the creator and sustainer of all things. You have made us. You have given us life and breath and everything. And yet we have fallen short of what you have called us to. This morning, would we turn from our sin? May we repent and come to Christ. And may we see the beauty and glory of your word empowered by your spirit this morning. There is nothing in me or in the blank words on this page that can do anything. It is by your spirit alone that empowers them to be effective unto salvation. Would we trust in you this morning and your powerful might? In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Right? So a lot of review here. If you remember, we've done two, we did two parts on chapter 10. We kind of covered it from two different perspectives, right? We, this is really sort of a rehashing of what we saw in chapter 10, if you guys have been here. So chapter 10, we talked about two main things. This idea of the Gentiles being included into the church. And then we also talked about the second aspect, the fact that they do not have to submit themselves to the law of Moses to be circumcised and all these things. So hopefully, if you guys remember some of that, we'll do a little bit of review today. But hopefully we see how that's important, right? That's not just for them at that time. Yes, that discussion's not going around today as much anymore. But there's important things that we drew out of that, and hopefully we can remember some of that. 
So this morning we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the objection. And we see that in verses 1 through 3 of, of chapter 11. We're going to look at this objection to this, the, the gospel going to the Gentiles. Then in verses 4 through 17, we'll see Peter's explanation. He's going to explain himself. And then finally, in verse 18, we'll see the great realization of what God has done. So, objection, explanation, and the realization. So, verse 1, we see that the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea had heard this news. So, this news was traveling, that these Gentiles had come to faith, that they had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That this message was not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So word was traveling quickly. And so not only apostles, but other brothers and sisters find out about this. And I wanted to point something out, even right off the bat. It's very interesting. Some of you might not know this, but these chapters and verses are not part of how the apostles wrote the Bible. They didn't go, okay, chapter 11, right? These were put in years, hundreds of years after. So we can kind of think of this as one flowing account from Luke. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 11, what does it say? It says, the Gentiles received the word of God. And I point that out because if you go back two verses in chapter 10, what's it say? In verse 47, that they received the Holy Spirit. Just sort of interesting. So what did they receive? Did they receive the word or did they receive the spirit? And the answer is yes, (laughs) right? Yes, they received both. And I just point that out because there's a lot of thinking in our day that likes to separate the word and the spirit. I'm more of a word person, right? Or I'm more of a spirit person. I even heard that recently. And that's problematic because the way the scripture presents is... They're speaking of the same thing. To be in the word, to receive the word, is to receive the spirit. And this is not a mere physical Bible, right? It's not just to, I received a Bible, right? That's not what Luke is pointing out here in the book of Acts. He's saying to receive the word is to receive, as First Peter says, the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. So when we receive the word, by faith we're receiving the spirit. So I just wanted to point that out. I think that's very interesting. And it's important, as we'll see in the latter part of today, this idea of word and spirit going together, the spirit illuminating the word, the word showing us the true work of the spirit. So in verse 2, we see that Peter goes up to Jerusalem. So he was in Joppa, and he goes up to Jerusalem. So they had heard about this, and we see this objection start. It says, those of the circumcision, this would have been, the Jewish people heard about this message going to the Gentiles. And we see their objection there in verse 3. And it's sort of framed as a statement, a very accusatory statement. It says, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So let's talk about this objection, because this might, again, might not make sense to a lot of us. We've talked about it in a, in a roundabout way, but let's, let's talk about it more pointedly. In the Old Testament, maybe some of us are familiar with this, there was clean and there was unclean. You could go to the book of Leviticus, maybe you've had to go there for your Bible reading plan, and, (laughs) you know, oh, here's a list of animals, here's a list of this, and so you skip over that, or, you know, don't lie. (laughs) And so you've gone through, and you see these long lists of 
what animals are clean, what animals are unclean. And this not only pertains to food, but also other things, right? Uh, if you had leprosy, you were unclean. And so you had, there's these ways that you were purified. And so for the Jewish people, this was how they understood being in covenant with God. It was through this ceremonial purity, this ceremonial cleanliness. That's how you knew who was in and who you knew was out. And so this was the big question, right? They saw Peter go and eat and speak to Gentiles. And this would have been problematic for two reasons. One, because they're assuming that Peter did not check and see if those Gentiles were ceremonially clean. And then secondly, if Peter didn't check that, he would be unclean. So to not only if Peter didn't do anything himself, but if he was just around and ate with those people that were unclean, he became unclean in their eyes. And so this is their objection. How, how can you eat and drink with these Gentiles, these unclean, uncircumcised people? And so we see basically what they're, they're saying is explain yourself. How is this? How is this? Because for them, Peter was committing a sin. He was the one that was unclean. He was the one that was breaking God's law. So this is the objection in verses 1 through 3. So then now we'll turn and look at the explanation. So Peter very graciously explains what happens. And it even says there that he explained to them in order. I think that's a little interesting word in there that he's not flying off the handle um, quick to defend himself by, you know, saying, how dare you? I had a vision, <laughs> right? He's, re- he's very orderly in the way that he explains himself. And we see sort of three things in verses 4 through 17, and I won't go through all this in detail because we've done that the last couple weeks, but we see three things pointed out by Peter. The vision, the voice, and the validation. The vision, the voice, and the validation. We see in verses 4 or th- sorry, 3 through 6, we see the vision. And you'll remember that from chapter 10. He basically just retells that there was a sheet that came down from heaven that had all these unclean animals on it, right? And it's sort of interesting to think about, especially in light of this clean, unclean distinction. And just a little tidbit. It says there that it was let down by its four corners. Four in the scriptures is a number of completion or totality. And so you'll see the scriptures talk about the four corners of the earth. This is not saying the world is flat, (laughs) that there's four literal corners. Hopefully there's no flat earthers in here. (laughs) It's saying that there's four corners of the earth, meaning it's totality. And so we can see this sheet is all-encompassing. It is the four corners of the sheet. It is saying all creatures, all animals, clean and unclean. So this is the vision. And then we see this voice speak to Peter, because this probably would have been sort of confusing for Peter to see this. And this voice speaks, and it says, rise, kill, and eat. And much to the chagrin of vegetarians or vegans, this is the voice calling Peter to (laughs) eat these unclean foods, these unclean animals. And we see Peter resist this a little bit, as we've talked about before, but ultimately God reassures him and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we've seen the vision, the voice speak to Peter. And then we see this validation in verses 11 through 17, this validation. Because we could, we could put ourselves in these shoes of these apostles and brothers. 
Peter comes to them. He's just spoken to these unclean people. And yeah, Peter, cool. You had a vision. (laughs) You saw a sheet coming down. You're crazy, right? So how is Peter, what is he standing on? He's giving a true account of what happened. He's giving the vision and this voice that spoke to him. But what's the validation? We'll see a couple things here. First, that there's witnesses. It says, these six brothers also accompanied me. So he's saying, this is not just me. These other people saw what happened. They saw these Gentiles come to faith. There's two or more witnesses, as the scriptures tell us. And it's also interesting that this idea of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we saw that in verses 44 through 48 last week. We saw after Peter proclaims the gospel to these Gentiles, we see the Spirit fall on them. We see the Spirit fall on them. And this is sort of the second validation. So not only are there witnesses to this account, but there is the validation of the Holy Spirit. And again, as we go verse by verse through the Bible, it's important to not forget where we've come before. And so hopefully, if some of you were here at the very beginning of the book of Acts, we talked about Pentecost, right? And what was Pentecost? The Spirit descended, right? People spoke in other languages. And Peter proclaim this great message of Christ. So very similar things that have happened in verse 10 or chapter 10 rather in chapter 2. And so why why is this happening? Why did the spirit descend in Pentecost in chapter 2 of the book of Acts? And as we talked about before, it was a reversal of Babel. If you remember Babel in the book of Genesis was this time when all the peoples of the earth were evil and they tried to build this tower, this hill if you will to commune with God, to be higher than God. And God comes down in judgment. He confuses their language, and that's where we see all the nations spread out over all the earth. And so Pentecost is sort of a reversal of that. It is God coming down not in judgment, but in blessing, not in confusion, but to unify every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so that will, we see a continuation of that today in the book of not only in chapter 10 and 11 of Acts, but even here, us today, speaking English, right? That God is communicating the gospel in every language to the people of God, this great gospel of God. And so, just like Peter says, he he goes to Joel chapter 2, and it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That doesn't mean every person, all flesh. It means all types of people, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. That Christ... The substance has come, and so we are looking to him. So this is Peter's explanation. So he shows both the vision, the voice, and this validating work of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel and the Spirit have not only come to the Jews and the Samaritans, but to the Gentiles. And so we see in verse 18, if you want to look there with me, we see this great realization, this great realization. It says, when they heard these things, they fell Silent. They fell silent. They are totally wrong. I don't know if you've ever, um, you know, thought something about someone or maybe even spoken someone about someone too quickly and you find out the exact opposite thing is true and it often silences us. It brings us to close our lips in humility and so that's what we see in, in verse 18. And then it says that they glorified God, that they glorified God that they realized that the Gentiles had been grafted into this people of God, that God had granted them repentance. 
that God had granted them repentance, that it was not about this external ceremonial cleanliness. They had missed the whole point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was about pointing to the Christ, keeping the people of Israel clean and pure and the line pure so that the Christ could come. And once the Christ comes, all those shadows are done away with. And they're realizing in this moment that they had missed the point of the Old Testament. It was not about this external cleanliness. It was about Christ and his work. And so now that Christ has come, as they're realizing Christ, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of David, all these types and shadows have fallen away. It's no longer about building the physical nation of Israel. It's about building the church of God. It's not about outward cleanliness or ceremonial purity. It's about being inwardly pure of heart, washed in the blood of Christ. It's not about being circumcised outwardly, a physical people. It's about having our hearts circumcised by faith, as we read, as we read in Colossians this morning. So all these shadows are falling away. And this is basically, if you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, towards the end of our New Testament, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is to say, don't go back to the shadows. The substance, which is Christ, is here. Don't go back. And so this has huge ramifications. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see the Gentiles welcomed in, and we see this great idea that they are also granted repentance, that this new covenant in Christ's blood purifies not only the seed of Abraham physically, but the seed of Abraham's faith, Gentiles also. So this is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. So as we do every week, let's try to contemplate what we've, what we've read and try to apply it to our lives. Three things this morning. First, that true repentance, true repentance leads to life. True repentance leads to life. We see that in the last verse of our message this morning. Verse 18 says that God granted repentance that leads to life. So true repentance leads to life. These people fell silent. They realized that it was not about outward holiness. It was not about this outward cleanliness. It was about true repentance that leads to life. And Paul, later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about these two different types of repentance. He talks about a worldly repentance and a godly repentance. What is worldly repentance? He says it's being sad, but just about the consequences, right? It's saying, oh, I messed up. Darn. I caused this bad thing to happen, but as soon as the opportunity comes around, fall back into it. This is worldly repentance. It's not considering, like Daryl said, this idea of offending God. It's just upset about the consequences. And Paul says this sort of worldly repentance leads to death. But he also talks about a godly repentance that leads unto life. What is godly repentance? It's not just concerned with the consequences. It's concerned with offending the God of the universe and turning from our sin, as, as we read this morning. And so Peter himself is even a great example of this. If you remember in the Gospels, both Judas and Peter deny our Lord, right? Judas sells him for 30 pieces of silver. 
Peter denies him three times. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas's repentance was a worldly repentance. He tries to give the money back, right? He tries to say, I don't want anything to do with this. The blood not be on me. But he goes off into the field and he kills himself because he's, he's not actually sorry for what he did. He's just sad about the consequences. He realized that this perfect person, he's just murdered, basically. But on the other hand, we see Peter who has a true godly repentance. He is upset about his sin. And we see the Lord ultimately restore him. And so as we look at our confession of faith that we read this morning, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace whereby a sinner is made aware of a true sense of their sin, but after that, with a full purpose and endeavor to walk in new obedience, that this is true repentance that leads to life. And this is what these people realized, that it was not about being a physical people of Israel. It was about being repentant unto life. That's what this work of Christ had done in their hearts, both Jew and Gentile, They both needed repentance. It wasn't just the Gentiles. It was also the Jews. Peter, all these people also needed repentance. So, repentance that leads to life. Secondly, repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God. We see that also in verse 18. What does it say? Then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. God has granted repentance. So this is sort of interesting for some of us that haven't thought about this, this idea that God is the one that grants repentance. And I think for some of us, this can leave us feeling sort of helpless. What? God is the one that grants repentance? This can leave us feeling in a place of total helplessness, right? So in our sin... We're unable to work up enough effort to truly repent, right? We can't do it. We need God to act. And so this can leave us feeling helpless. And another way we could say this is that a heart of stone cannot be sensitive to the things of God, right? A heart that is stone, hard as a rock, cannot be sensitive to the things of God. We read that in Ezekiel. And so we know that in Adam... All that have come after Adam Adam, have the law written on our hearts, but it's written in stone. We're not sensitive to it, right? We all know intuitively that we're to worship God. We look outside, we see God's creation. We see he's given us life. I was just looking at a picture on the internet the other day of a human cell. It's the most intricate, crazy thing, and we have 30 trillion of them in our body. (laughs) And this is testifying to the glory of God that he created us And yet, what do we do in our sin? We worship other things. We worship and serve creation rather than the creator. And we know intuitively that we're supposed to love other image bearers. We're supposed to love our fellow man and love our fellow woman. But yet, we don't do that. We hate our neighbor in our sin. And sometimes we dress it up. We make it look nice. You know, we give to charity and we try to absolve ourselves through these things. But ultimately... At our core, we are very selfish people. So the law written on our heart in stone is a very interesting thing because the law is good, right? We should love God. We should love our neighbor. The law is not bad, but it has no power to help us obey it. Have you ever thought about that? The law in and of itself has no power to help us obey it. And to give sort of a weird example, 
So Emily can attest to this. I've had this bad habit recently of picking my fingers, right? I don't know if any of you ever get hangnails and nervously sort of pick at your skin, right? And this has probably gone on for a little bit. And Emily has been telling me, don't pick your finger. Don't pick your finger. Don't do it. It's wrong. She's laughing because she knows it's true. Stop it. And so what do I do? Okay, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. But then within five seconds, me not even thinking about it, again, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. She's giving me law in a sense, if we want to put it like that. She's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay, okay, I won't do it. But before I know it, I'm doing it again. And it wasn't until I realized how deep this went that I actually understood how helpless I was. I looked on the internet. Okay, I really want to break this habit. How do I do it? I looked up. Okay, how do you stop picking your nails? Google will help. There's a thing called skin picking disorder. <laughs> I'm sorry if this is gross or weird, but <laughs> skin picking disorder. And I saw, I just started reading this description, right? Picking your skin without even thinking about it to the point where you're hurting yourself, right? Sorry if this sounds trite or weird, but as I was reading that, I realized I'm hurting myself. But this is us in our sin, right? We, somebody tells us, stop doing that. Stop doing this. And all that is is law because all it can do is tell us where we're wrong. It can't make us want to do right. And it wasn't until I saw how helpless I was. I'm not saying I have a disorder or anything, but I realized how deep it went and how much I was hurting myself, hurting others. And this is us in our sin. And so this morning... As we think about this idea of God granting repentance, you might say, Kendall, that sounds helpless. That's exactly what we need, is to know how helpless we are before a holy God. Amen. And this brings us to our last point, right? We need to see our helplessness because we need to be reminded how much we need this new heart that God promises. This new heart that's not made of stone, but that's made of flesh that is sensitive to God's law and the things of God. And that's why we need both the Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. This is our third point of contemplation, the Word and the Spirit. We don't need a motivational talk. We don't need a bunch of positive, you know, posters. We don't need another even Pentecost, right? We need the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God to empower the proclamation of the Word of God. That's the only way it can bear any fruit in our souls. This is what we need. And this is why God has given us His Word. I was trying to explain to my children this week, what is this thing? This is God's revelation to us, right? This is God's Word. That's why we call it that. It is God's word. Theonoustos is the Greek term. God breathed. God has given us his word. And so this is amazing. What does the word talk about? It talks about the work of Christ, both Old Testament and New Testament. Promises this Christ to come. The New Testament says that he has come. And so that's what we see in the gospel of Christ. We see Christ accomplish redemption, live the perfect life, die the death that we deserve. We see this idea of redemption for sinners like us is accomplished. And so the question that we need to ask is, how, how do the benefits that Christ has won, right? What does Christ want? Justification, adoption, purity, cleanliness. He has washed us by his blood. How does the benefits of Christ come to us? 
comes by faith. Faith wrought by the Spirit, enlightened by the Word of God. That is how the benefits of Christ come to us. That's why we don't do anything besides we pray the Word, we sing the Word, we preach the Word. If we were to take the Lord's Supper, we would be eating a visible picture of the Word, right? Christ's body and blood shed for us. This is, our whole life is to trust in and believe the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God. And so this morning, this is where our hope is. If we're weak, if we're weak in our sin, if we're weak in our flesh, we come to the Word. We see Christ's cleansing, washing power, that He's the great high priest that has gone before us has purified us, not by a bunch of animal sacrifices, but by the sacrifice of his own blood. He has poured out for one time a sacrifice that cleanses. And so this morning, as we're weak and we're weighed down by our sin, we can come to Christ. As we read this morning, repent, turn from our sin. Don't go back to it. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Christ. And we can be truly clean. Not just outwardly clean, not just externally clean, but truly purified. And I'll close by reading Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, listen to this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have not left us in our sin, in our uncleanness, but you have sent your Son, the only pure, the only spotless Lamb, to come and not just live the perfect life as a good example but to come and spill his blood that we might be covered in the blood of the Lamb. May we see the work of Christ clearly this morning that this is not only for those of the offspring of Abraham physically, but it is those that have the faith that Abraham had, the righteousness that comes by faith. May we trust in Christ alone, not by works of the law, not by outward purity, but by being united to our Savior through faith. Would we rest in that this morning? And as we just read, come boldly before the throne, trusting in Christ. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we'll sing Psalm 23, hymnal number 319.
and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.